Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Welcome to episode 37 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is Kira Taylor. I'm the podcast producer at Foresight and a freelance energy journalist. I'll be filling in for David today, who is unable to join us this time, but will be back soon. With me, as always, is Michaela Hall of Agora Energy Vendor, and we're hoping that Jan now might join us soon. So, Michaela, how are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for asking. We have a new uh, setup now, only women. Uh, and with you, so uh, always fun. Was always a good experience Excellent. when we changed the team. Brilliant. Today, we're looking at how to reduce our methane emissions. Methane is notoriously damaging to our climate and in the short term, significantly more harmful than carbon dioxide. In the last couple of years, we've seen moves around the world to start addressing these emissions, including the Global Methane Pledge made at COP26. 111 countries have now committed to work together to collectively reduce methane emissions by at least 30% by 2030, based on 2020 levels. The EU is also working on its own law to monitor and reduce methane emissions. Our guest this week is Jutta Paulus, a member of the European Parliament for the Greens and one of the lawmakers negotiating the new file. Jutta, thanks for joining us on What Matters. Wonderful. Let's start with why methane is such a problem and what the methane regulation is going to do to tackle it. Um, methane is a so-called short-lived climate forcer, which means that it does have the property to warm the atmosphere in quite the same manner as carbon dioxide does. It is the infrared rays which get trapped in the molecules and then um will be in the in the atmosphere longer. So that is quite similar to CO2. But the big difference is that methane lives for about 12 years, which means after that it is broken down to CO2. So we don't have no problem anymore, but at least the, um, the principal problem is then gone because methane is much stronger than CO2. If you have one molecule of CO2 and you compare another molecule which is also destructive to the climate, what you usually do is you set it in relation and you set it in a relation for a certain period of time because those molecules all, don't all have the same life in the atmosphere and on a period of 20 years, methane is about 80 times as powerful as CO2, which is really a lot. Um, and if you look, would look at it at only a second, it would be even more powerful because the usual 100-year time frame um, goes down to about 30 years because methane has been long gone after 100 years. So to put it in a nutshell, if we want to act on climate fast, we should reduce methane emissions. And we have this methane regulation, which the EU is now negotiating. What is that looking at? The methane regulation of the European Union um, takes the powers, the 
yeah, the, the energy sector into its use. So it's not about agriculture. It's not about waste. It's only about the energy sector, um, which is unfortunately the smallest sector in the EU when it comes to methane emissions. But at least we're doing something at all. And um, what the regulation says, if you produce oil or gas or coal within the European Union, or if you distribute it through pipelines, then you have to make sure that um, you minimize the escape of methane into the atmosphere. For example, by putting um, a certain regulatory framework, how often does a producer have to search for leaks in his equipment? How, how do you have to mitigate things like um, methane coming from coal mines? What do you have to do when you are actually producing oil or gas? Are you allowed to flare, which is those nice, um, those nice stacks which you're seeing with a big flame? Um, are you allowed to do that under which circumstances? And in, in this manner, we actually aim to reduce the methane emissions from the energy sector by about 90%. What stage is it at when it comes to the debates going on at the moment? Um, The European Commission brought forward the proposal, I think it was in December 2021, so that was quite a while ago. And then, as always, those laws get passed into the Parliament and into the um, Council of Member States. The Council of Member States found a general approach. That's what the official name is. So the Council of Member States says, okay, we want um, this regulation to be changed in a certain way. And that is our um, position. And the European Parliament did the same. Um, The European Parliament's position is, if I may say so, much better than the one by the Council because we have much stronger provisions for the producers to actually curb their emissions. The Parliament has adopted its position in May and now we are waiting for starting negotiations with Council. If I may come in, Jutta. Um, So what do you expect the outcome to be? Because you just basically said um, the Parliament has a stronger position. So uh, I'd just be curious, also looking a little bit of the timeline, COP28, you know, like, are you optimistic that the EU will be able to bring something to the COP table that would ratchet up our ambition on methane? Because if I understand correctly, the EU, I mean, we're doing this regulation, but we're actually catching up with other economic areas, right? We're not necessarily leading on that. Maybe you could say something about that. Yes, exactly. So we're a bit catching up with, for example, Norway. They have had very, very strong regulations in place already for years, which is the reason why in Norway the um, the numbers are much, much better than in other European countries when it comes to methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Um, we are also catching up with Nigeria. Guess what? Because Nigeria also has um, regulation in place which will kick in in the, in the coming years. And we're also a bit catching up with the United States because in the famous Inflation Reduction Act, there's also some provision on methane saying that you will have to pay a tax for every molecule that is escaping your equipment. So basically, we're not alone here. We're, as you said, catching up with what the rest of the world is also starting to do. And the most important thing that is in the European Parliament's position, actually, is that we want to extend this regulation 
to imports because 90% of our oil and gas, which we consume within the European Union, is imported from other countries. And some of these countries have regulation in place, such as Norway, Nigeria, the US, but not everyone. Let's look at Azerbaijan. Let's look at um, the all the, the MENA countries like Li Libya, Algeria. There's a lot of methane escaping there. And this is something which we could fairly easily remedy um, by saying, if you want to import into the European Union, make sure that you get your methane emissions covered. Great. Well, we have good and bad news. The bad news is that the all-female all podcast is over. The good news is that Jan has now joined us. Jan, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Uh, sorry for being late. It was the commission um, and their stakeholder consultation. I was supposed to have finished an hour ago. You spoke already about the imports, including. I think that's uh, if the EU wants to show its seriousness, given that we import most of it, I think it only makes sense. Um but on you know on level of ambition etc and scope a little bit what do you think is within reach to to be the final agreement which i assume well, will come end of this I, year well you you might understand that i will not lay out our strategy for the no, trilogues in of detail not. in this podcast um, i mean <laughs> <laughs> looking at what the the council wants and what um Actually, the Parliament wants the biggest difference is, of course, that we as Parliament want to have it extended to imports, which the Council never even had an idea to do so. So um, it might be a bit difficult to convince them that this is a good idea. So basically, we will have, if we want to get this through, we will have to find something that uh, where we could sort of give the Council something. And the council, of course, has much, much more leeway when it comes to the question of leak detection and repair, where we have very stringent um, provisions on how often do you have to do it, which equipment do you have to use, not the exact equipment, of course, but how sensitive does it have to be. And the council is there much more, well, some people say flexible. I don't think whether this is the best word to use, but never mind. So there probably will be some trade-offs in, in that regard. We have pretty similar approaches when it comes to coal, which is a problem in the European Union because we still have um, underground hard coal mining and those underground strata of coal also emit methane. And especially in Poland, we there are a lot of these old coal mines with um, a lot of methane escaping and there are still people working there. It's fairly easy to mitigate the methane when um, the, the mine is empty. But um, in Poland, the mine is not empty. There are people down there. And as you know, methane is explosive. So it's maybe not the best idea to try to concentrate it down there And um, because there might be explosions. That is much easier when you have a closed down coal mine, such as in Germany. But their council and parliament have a very similar approach because there's this social agreement um, between the trade unions and the coal, coal mine um, operators and the workers and the government on a closure plan for those coal mines. And basically what we agreed on is something that would not jeopardize yeah. this closure plan. Um I'd be curious to hear a little a bit more um, how you experienced the uh, this first round within the parliament, because I think it wasn't 
we already had Mohamed Harim once here at a, as a guest, and he had funny things to tell about how it was to be the rapporteur on CBAM. <laughs> and from what I could see from outside, you also had your fair share of drama in this file. Really? <laughs> um, and you managed actually to get quite an ambitious position set up in the end. I don't know, maybe you just want to explain a little bit how it was. Uh, and, and also in your, I think if I remember correctly, you started with a relatively surprising general approach, which came earlier on the member state side, which in most files, it was the other way around. So just if you could explain a little bit how it was. And then my second question would be, if somehow the super high prices that we had experienced last year, did this somehow affect the discussion around methane? Because basically methane is a big waste of things that just go up in the air, um, you know, was there then a change of, okay, wow, we could capture all of this and actually that would help us in our current difficult situation or not? Well, that was actually the argument which I always try to use um, for saying, hey, let's um, also extend it to imports because um, in the European Union itself, we're fairly well um, in comparison. So there is not so much um, methane to be gained to, to sell, actually, as compared to the MENA region, for example. But there was this very interesting calculation that if all methane emissions in the MENA regions were subject to the same legislation as we are applying to the EU, that would cover about 15% of our inputs from Russia, which is, I mean, not, not more wow. than half, but yeah. I mean, 15% to have or not to have is, is quite an important exactly. measure. So basically, that, that was something that helped, actually. But coming back to the drama part, the drama started when the law came to the European Parliament because the um, ITRA Committee, Industry, Research and Energy, and the Environmental Committee, Environment, um, Food Safety and all other sorts of things, um, battled of who would be the leading committee. And there was a lot of back and forth of letters and emails and um, meetings and all that. And at the end of the day, the conference of committee chairs found a Solomonic decision and said, hey, we'll have joint procedures. So both committees will be um, on an equal, to an equal share, be responsible for this file which meant that the ENVI committee would elect a rapporteur and the ITRA committee would elect a rapporteur. And so I had the questionable um, joy of working with Miss um, Silvia Sadona, who is a member of Lega Nord, um, which is, let's be careful with language, let's say they are rather far right. They belong to the ID group, where we also have the German AfD, the French Rassemblement National, this sort of people. So it was clear that we would have maybe not the easiest time. And, um, well, what was easy actually that they didn't, she and her team didn't really work. So basically it's, it's always easier if, um, you and your team are the ones that are providing text and the other ones have to fight things off or try to get things out. So that, of course, helped a lot. It also helped a lot that we had quite a few progressive people working on the file in ITRA as well as in ENVI. So um, we managed to get along quite smoothly. And then Ms. Sadona said um, that I was in the hands of the NGOs, 
which she concluded from a Word document where one of the people who had been working on the Word document before was listed as one person from an NGO. And of course, I said, ha, I don't understand this. And after doing some, some digging, we found out, okay, this NGO had sent us a table. And um, this table was um, formatted in a very useful manner. So what happened was this table was taken, all text was removed, and it was filled with new text. But still, the person who had, in the first place, formatted that table will still stay as author of the document forever. I mean, it was a pretty ridiculous accu accusation because if you lay the document from this NGO next to ours, there was no single word which was actually the same. So it was pretty clear that this was um, a, a baseless accusation, but it, of course, caused a lot of rumors, especially within um, within the conservative um parties because they were getting a bit nervous on how ambitious this fire might become and they would have loved to remove me. So it took quite a while until we got this resolved and this of course caused I think two months delay at the end of the day but we finally managed to resolve this issue and even the conference of presidents um, talked about this and found out okay there's really no reason for this accusation so please go on working. And then Ms. Adona decided that she could not um, could not bring it over her um, um, over her conscience to be working with such person. So she said, "I will not work with Ms. Paulus anymore. Please remove me from the file." And I think what she thought is then the ND committee will have to appoint a new rapporteur. But the coordinators of the NB committee of the different political groups decided, well, this file is almost done. So why elect a new rapporteur? The chair, the chair of the committee shall take over, which is what is usually done when a rapporteur withdraws him or herself from the file. So instead of delaying the file further, um, Ms. Sadona managed to give the file to someone from the rather progressive side of the Renew group, which is, of course, for us rather good. <music> Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Um. Jutta, you've worked in politics for a long time. You have been heavily involved in discussions around energy in Europe. Uh, I remember well when we talked about gas, um, you know, so-called natural gas, now often called fossil gas, as a transition fuel. 20 years ago, that was kind of the narrative, you know, the, how people framed it. And I wonder what your observations are, sort of how that has changed and where we are. If we zoom out a little bit from the, the detail of the file and the story you just told us, yeah, how would you describe how the role of gas in the discussion has evolved and where do you see it going and what, 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 what does this um, actually result in in terms of the politics of all of this? Sorry, very big question, but I think you have some views on that and I'd, be, I'd love to hear it. 
Well, actually, um, I think 20 years ago, no one could have imagined one that solar and wind would become so incredibly cheap, so incredibly quickly. That was one thing. And we're seeing the same thing happening right now when it comes to storage, to battery storage, which was something that anyone familiar with the technology would have denied even five years ago. Everyone would have said, well, batteries, they need a lot of material. They're very expensive. They don't have the um, the required um, size or capacity. And these, this is only for small applications. And now we are seeing megawatt batteries being set up all over the globe. So I think that is something that will change the de debate even more in the years to come. And secondly, of course, the um, over-reliance of my own country, Germany, on Russian gas has brought it to our, um, to our attention rather painfully um, that we, we should not make ourselves so much depending on one single supplier when it comes to our energy. And um, with gas, it's a bit different than with oil because it's much more difficult or expensive to put, put gas on ships and transport it. And the pipeline gas will always be cheaper than the, the ship's gas. So I don't see methane being such a large part of the debate yet. That is something that we've been working on ever since I entered parliament. I don't know how successfully, because still a lot of people are not aware, but it should be. And I'm really glad that also the IPCC and the International Energy Agency took up this issue. And I think that we will see in the coming years ever more applications that used to be um, dedicated to be solved with gas being solved with other forms of energy carriers. I would totally agree that I find it, I, I don't understand how, non-aware EU climate and energy policy is around the methane topic, like how also disconnected the discussion on methane is on other things, be it hydrogen, you know, and, and this absolute lack of awareness that doing something on methane would help us create some space you know, you could quickly reduce emissions, create some breathing space, you know, because maybe to decarbonize heating, we just learned in our home country, difficult, we might need a few years. But this to use methane as a quick fix, also financially, like you mentioned the IRA, why is it that we are so methane agnostic in EU, starting from the ETS? Why is that? And we only talk energy sector, right? You, you mentioned already, I mean, the problem is bigger in agriculture. Why is it not a topic of the Green Deal, you know? Let's put it that way. We, we managed to include methane in the ETS for shipping, at least. It will become an issue, at least when it comes to shipping. Of course, first we had to amend the MRV, the Monitoring Reporting Verification Database, so that ships will be... Um, obliged to report their methane emissions because you cannot some price something where you have no idea of how much of it is actually going on. But that was the very first time where we actually put a price on methane emissions. And I'm really glad that we managed to get this through. 
I mean, we had it in, we ne I negotiated also the C2 emissions for my term transport where I included that in the file. And I, I'm really glad that it survived the trilogue when it came the, to the ETS. Um, I mean, I was in the room. It was, let's put it that way, not everyone was equally convinced that, it, that this would be a good idea. Um, I think the part of the answer is, of course, that it does put a black spot on the white vest of clean gas which doesn't have those particulate matter, which doesn't stink as much. You don't get dirt on your fingers. You don't have people working in underground mines. It's just this wonderful, clean, colorless gas that doesn't harm anybody. It doesn't contain mercury, which cold does, of course. So I think this part of the story is one side. And the other side is, of course, there's a lot of money to be earned with selling gas. So, of course, the um, lobby will try everything to keep this issue away from the agenda as long as possible. One thing that, that really surprised me is that the, the huge difference between different places in terms of methane leakage, uh, I'm, I'm talking upstream leakage here, um, and I found a, a paper from, I think it was from Stanford University, looking at New Mexico in the US, and they found 9% leakage Uh, which is is huge, and then Incredible. on right. the other hand, you have you know, countries like Norway, where the data I have seen is is at the at the far other end. You know, very low leakage rates. At least that's what's been reported in independent research papers. You know, less than 0.1%. percent. So there's this huge variety, and I mean, the question that arises is that why is that? I mean, is that all to do with regulation? Does it have to do with the technology that's being used? You know, it, can, can you provide some insight as to why we see some countries doing really badly when it comes to methane leakage, leakage and other countries seemingly um, addressing the problem uh, fairly well? I think part of the, of the answer is, of course, regulation. I'm sure that Equinor would not have acted as they did had there not been the regulation and, of course, the tax on methane. And the other part of the question is, who is actually responsible for what? So if you have a local company, which is maybe not even aware of the economical value of this gas, they are just flaring because they have always flared this. They're used to drill for oil, selling that oil, maybe not even in a very efficient manner, maybe not even with the most modern equipment. So They haven't thought about it. Also, if you're really focused on oil, you would have to buy equipment to capture the gas, buy a um, build a pipeline, whatever. And additionally, for example, in the US, you have that problem that you have all those very small companies that do the fracking for three, four, five years and then just leave when the sweet spots are, are over, leaving their drill holes open to um, emit further methane because there's an absolute lack of regulation. So I'm a big fan of regulation, actually, a bigger fan of regulation than of taxing because taxation is always something which you might be able to avoid or to simply pass on, whereas regulation is much more difficult to avoid as long as there's enforcement, of course. And this is also the, the reason why we are saying We are strong supporters of the um, international 
approach of monitoring, recording and verification of methane emissions, which has been negotiated at the UN level. And this is also something that we are putting into European legislation now so that there is a common approach on how do we actually measure these emissions and how do we actually report and verify them so that there everyone can have a clear picture of what is going on. And also, without Copernicus, we would not know where we are. Copernicus satellite program of the European Union has done so much in making this problem more aware no one can really say, oh, this satellite picture is pure lie and fabrication because everyone has access to this data. That's really interesting because I think Michaela was bringing up the idea that this is quite, this is an issue that people don't really think about. And yet we are beginning to get more data. We are beginning to see the issue a bit more. I think we're pretty much running out of time, but Yota, you're also a shadow rapporteur on the nature restoration law. And we saw a big vote on that on Thursday, quite a dramatic vote. I was watching it. I don't want to say entertaining, but a little bit entertaining when it comes to watching uh, votes. What was your take on what happened and what do you expect to come next on this? Well, what happened, we managed to stop the crusade of Manfred Weber against um, the Green Deal and Ursula von der Leyen. I mean, the conservatives did not like the Green Deal in the first place. They are more or less grudgingly accepted it, also because it was a conservative who proposed it. So it's a bit difficult to be against, but they didn't really love it in the first place. Now, with the onset or the assault of Russia on Ukraine. Of course, the energy and climate issues became a bit more pressing and they accepted that it might be a good idea to found one's energy system on an energy carrier which cannot be switched off or owned by anyone. So with renewables, we're rather fine right now. But um, all the other issues of the Green Deal, be it circular economy, be it zero pollution, be it bring back biodiversity, be it farm to fork, they never liked this. And I think that Weber has learned very well from the success of the conservatives in Austria and also in the US, just come out with populist stuff, tell things over and over and over again. It doesn't matter whether they are true or not, as long as you tell them loud enough and often enough and he really lured also people into believing that if we close our eyes very, very tight, then the problem will go away by itself, a little a bit like a two-year-old in kindergarten. You cannot see me. So um, this is really disconcerting, and also it's undermining our international credibility because if conservatives are, are saying, let's kill the nature restoration law, which is basically the legal base for our fulfillment of um, the Kunming Montreal Agreement on Biodiversity, that is very problematic. So I'm very happy that we managed to fend off the assaults in the first attempt in the Environmental Committee, but um, as the majorities were so incredibly narrow, the text which will come out of Envy will probably be a bit, let's say, contradictory and chaotic. So we still have to strategize on how to proceed further. Of course, whatever happens, it will go to plenary. Either a somehow contradictory text will go to plenary or no text at all, because if in the final vote there is no majority, then we'll have no text to send to plenary. So... Um, 
I think the focus is, of course, first on the 27th, but we also already have to think ahead what is going to be the strategy for plenary. I, for my part, will do everything it needs to have a text passed because everything else would be devastating, as I said, for international credibility, but of course also for our bare necessities, such as clean water, breathable air, fertile soils. And I found it also very telling that a lot of um, actors from the economic side spoke up in the recent days, actors like Nestle or like Microsoft or, I mean, really big, big companies saying that without nature, there is no economy. So it survived the initial rejection and then it will be voted on 27th, which is actually three days, I think, before this podcast goes out. So people who are enjoying this will have the knowledge that we don't of what happened there. But then, of course, (laughs) it will go to the big vote for the whole European Parliament in plenary. And I think that will also be a big test for it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to look into your crystal ball and tell us what you expect the energy transition to look like in 10 to 20 years time. I think in, I'll be very bold now, in 10 years' time, solar will have taken over as the major source for energy, not only for electricity, but for energy all over the globe. And it will be coupled with wind and with battery storage. We will have some hydrogen being used, for example, in the chemical industry or in other applications which are very difficult or not at all to electrify hydrogen will also be used in small quantities, I think, in in 10 years' time when it comes to producing e-fuels for international shipping and for aviation, surely not for road transport. And I hope that we will also see a truly circular economy taking shape because without circular economy and energy efficiency, the energy transition will not succeed. Thank you. And before we all go, I'd like to invite everyone to say what caught their eye this week. Jan, maybe let's start with you. Yeah, for me, it is um, an announcement from a a Swedish company that will offer people subscription heat pumps. I just saw this uh, and it sounds pretty interesting. It's a bit like Netflix. You you pay a monthly fee and you get a heat pump uh, at no upfront cost. Will this succeed? Who knows? But it's certainly an interesting proposition. So that was the one thing that that caught my eye. Netflix for heat pumps. Amazing. Uh, Jutta, what about you? I found it increasingly astounding how how much speed the um, so-called balcony solar movement took up in in Germany. Um, Balcony PV is you have a PV panel and you don't put it on your roof, but you just hang it from your balcony and there's a simple plug which you plug into your electricity system. And of course, it will not cover all your electricity needs. But on the other hand, Germany is a country where I think barely more than half of the people are living in their own property. A lot of people are living in rented property and it's a brilliant way to have them participate in the energy transition. And there was a petition for um, deregulating balcony PV, which got, I think now they're at 250,000 petitioners and the government is right now deregulating all the stuff that they had to do before, which was sheer madness, actually. One further um, inheritance from the old government. And that is something which I would really 
love to see on every balcony in my city hang two or three solar panels and everyone has the possibility to lower his or her energy bill in just a simple way. And that's a great development. Excellent. That's another reason for me to be jealous of people who have balconies. Michaela, how about you? <laughs> I'd sign up for Netflix and balcony. Um Yeah, um, you're also upbeat, so I can bring in some bad news into this upbeat podcast. Um, well, uh, I read about uh, the 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 off the chart Atlantic surface temperatures. Uh, really, if you see the graph and uh, you don't know, you know something bad is is going on, and uh, the 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 prediction that the Arctic will be ice free for the first time in a few years. And then to try to reconcile this with the what I perceive still to be a lack of sense of urgency in our decisions, well, be it methane that we discussed today or the German heating discussion. So, yeah, as I said, I'm not as cheerful here. I'm bringing the bad news. Oh, that's really bad because we're going to end on a bad note because I also have a bad news one. Um, but for me, it was a story in The Guardian which uh, showed that the UK had had to bring online some coal plants in order to meet the air conditioning demand. And for me, it really showed the complexity of the energy transition that alongside the more erratic weather that we're getting with climate change, you're now having to look at these backup things and not all of them are fossil free. So yeah, a very, very complex energy transition that I'm not sure we're still getting right but at the end of the day if there's an electricity demand it has to be met by something um well that's all we have time for this week thanks to Yuta, Michaela and Jan if you have any thoughts or questions about anything we said on today's podcast you can reach us on our twitter accounts I'm on at Kira Taylor 15 Jan I'm on Jan Rosenau Yuta and I'm on Jutta Paulus RLP, which stands for Rheinland-Pfalz, which is my home constituencies. <laughs> and Michaela. That's a disinsane one. If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time.